You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Uh, let's uh, look in God's Word. Let's go back to Romans 11. I want to look. We've been singing about this great God and all glory to Him and His sovereignty, and we are going to see that as well as we begin to close out Romans chapter 11. In particular, we're going to be at verse 33. Um, I will read as I've done. I'll start back in 25. I've been doing that, and then we'll, um, I'll read to the end here. While you're on your way to Romans 11, I've got a picture from Cora from last week. I don't think Cora is here. Matheson, she's got a lot going on here, and we were covering a lot, and God forgives, and the Gentiles, and the disobedience, God's consigned, and then mercy on all, and God's promises, uh, and so forth, and, and the gift, the gifts and calling that come from God that are irrevocable. We listened to it this week. Could you say it either way? You could, either way, uh, uh, but uh, that's what they were. So Coram, thanks for that picture. Maybe she'll see this uh, somewhere. Let's come to God's Word then. Back, chapter 11, verse 25. Again, our focus is going to be 33 and onwards, but let's start back there once again. Where Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray again as we study. Lord, we come to you. 1 Corinthians 2 would remind us, Lord, that the things of you are made known by your Spirit. You make known the things of God, the Spirit within us, your Spirit, that makes known to us your Word and who you are. Lord, we see you, Psalm 19. We see you in creation. and Psalm 19, we see you in your law. We see you in your Word in the Scriptures. Lord, I pray those gathered here this morning, preacher and the listener and the worshiper as we listen, Lord, that we would see you. You would lift our eyes to you once again. When our eyes are cast to this world or things of this world or situations or circumstances of this world where you have directly put us, yet, Lord, in the, in the living in this world, Lord, may our eyes once again be set and cast on you 
even from this section in your word. So we pray that by your spirit, you would do that work here amongst us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Somewhere in the far western regions regions of the Pacific Ocean, there lies a deep area, deep trench. You've maybe heard of it, called the Mariana Trench. And within the Mariana Trench is a place called Challenger Deep. You ever heard of Challenger Deep? Maybe you've heard. If you look up Google and say, what's the deepest place there is? You're going to find Challenger Deep is the deepest place there is. Challenger Deep is not a swimming pool, kind of a wading pool in the Pacific Ocean. It's, it's 35,876 feet deep. That's how, when you, when you want to dive to the bottom, you're going 35,876 feet down to the bottom. Just for sake of comparison, Mount Everest, which I'm not sure any of us climbed this past week, if you were, you'd be climbing 29,000 feet. You wouldn't even be climbing as high as Challenger Deep is deep. It's deep. It's down there. Six miles, over six miles down. There's something deeper than Challenger Deep. Infinitely deeper, and that's what we find in our text today. And it is the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We are here near the end Of these three chapters we've been in, I think even since the beginning of March it's been, chapters 9 through 11, and we're even at the end of what uh, I think others would say is kind of the theological focus of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, this doctrinal focus, more focused on the gospel and what's going to follow. We will get to 12 here, and onward is more this practical, kind of the application of the gospel, so that will be coming. But in chapters 1 through 11, we've studied. We've studied the fact that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, were accountable before God. And it's only through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ, where we receive redemption. Christ is our redemption. He is our propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God on the cross in our place when we put our faith in Him. And so we are justified. We've talked about justification, that idea of in the sight of God, in the courtroom of God, being declared righteous. Justification. And then what follows that is having died to sin in Christ, we in Christ, we who are in Christ are made alive. And so sin no longer has this dominion. We're not slaves to sin anymore. And then Paul kind of finishes even chapter 8. In all these things, we're more than conquerors, through Him who loved us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And again, connected to Jesus Christ our Lord. But then as we look through chapters 9 through 11, there's this question, kind of various ways, what about then? So Jew and Gentile saved the same way, but what about those people of Israel? What about ethnic, the people of God, Israel? Has God rejected them because they've rejected Christ in large part? And what about God's promises to them? And Paul's gone back and forth here, looking at God's, his sure election to show mercy on all whom God will show mercy. And God is the potter, and he hardens whom he will, and he has mercy on whom he will. All that while the man is responsible, men and women responsible for their own sin. But the Lord is not done with Israel as an ethnic group. And God can and wills. We've been looking at, trying to 
understand it, these inscrutable ways of God. He's going to bring in Jews, but it's by God's choosing and by His grace. And that's where we've been. We've seen in these last few sermons just this back and forth of how God is doing this, and, and even in a way that only God would plan and execute. So where we're at today, verses 33 through 30, 36, in one way they conclude all, I, all, all, like the whole chapter, all of 1 through 11, or just even where we're at, they kind of, they serve almost as a conclusion to this. Kind of a mountaintop, climax, high point. And I think they also point even directly to God's ways in his sovereign salvation of both Jew and the Gentile. And so even verse 32, just from last week, we saw God has, he's consigned all to disobedience that, so a really important word, what's the purpose that he might have mercy on all, all who will come to Christ. And so Paul responds here, we've already read it, but verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We're just going to take some time through these descriptions here and think about these depths of God. And just, I just want to encourage you, enjoy the pondering of them. Just consider them. How great, how really sovereign this God that we worship is. And the first depth listed here is that of riches, the depth of God's riches. We would agree, Scripture would say, God, He certainly owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns everything. I'm not sure that monetary riches are what Paul has in mind here. Oh, the depth. He's just rich, as in He's got all the gold. It's it's deeper than this. I think in the context here, thinking back where we're at, chapter 11, chapter 10, I think we're on much firmer ground to consider this depth of riches as describing, once again, I think, gospel riches. The riches of Christ, even himself. Leon Morris describes them as God's riches in mercy and grace. Those riches, God's riches are deep, and they are deep in Christ. Listen to just a few other verses. If you want to write down the reference, go for it. A couple other places where we hear of these riches. Philippians 4.19 And my God, Paul says, these are all from Paul as well, his writings. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's not just 20 bucks for this or that. It's the riches in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.8, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of of Christ, which sounds a lot like our verse 33, doesn't it? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Same word we've kind of got here. But where? Not, not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly. So don't set your heart on riches but then on, set your heart on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God's depth of these true riches is greater. But the world and our own flesh, it lure, lures us into thinking that the only riches worth having are the riches that we can 
see. Even among, maybe you've heard of some of the prosperity preachers, a guy like Kenneth Copeland and others, there's a line even that they use. Maybe you've seen it if you watch American Gospel. There's a line where they say, it's this line, money cometh to me. And then the words, now. And it's like this mantra, it's like this worship service, and I think it is, towards money, not towards the Lord. But it's this call out, money comes, and if you just say it right, or you say it enough, I don't know how it all works, then you're going to get wealthy. But these leaders and the followers are missing. They are starving. Wealth may come. It may not. But they're starving themselves. They're starving their followers from the true riches of Christ. The allure of riches, whether it's, it might be fancy cars or mansions, or you say, it, yeah, that's not my problem. I don't want any of those things. But how many of us just want a little more than what we have now? If I could just, just a little more. Oh, I don't need the mansion, but a little more would be nice. Why? A little more comfort, a little more ease. I think how many of us, I'll just speak for myself, how much joy do we think in that thing or that amount or whatever, that then joy will come. But there are deeper riches than this, the riches of God's mercy and grace in Christ. And so by way of an application here, just while we go through these, by way of application, a question, have you been swimming? Have I been swimming? Have you been swimming in the shallow waters of the world's riches? Or have you dove down? deep to taste and see the Lord is good and to see his riches that are in Jesus Christ. Dive here. This is where we find them. Dive into his word and taste and see these things. Oh, the depth, Paul says, of the riches of God. There's other deep things here as well. The depth of God's wisdom. It's always helpful when we come around words, what does wisdom mean? If you're thinking, I saw one book describe, wisdom is that maybe that old guy on a hillside and he, you know, maybe he's got a staff. He's just the wise one. What, what makes him that? What's, what's about wisdom? My study Bible, when it intros the book of Proverbs, says something generally about wisdom. It says it can have the nuance of skill, particularly the skill of, so hear this, choosing the right course of action for the desired result. There's activity going on with wisdom. It's, it's knowledge, but it's this idea of skillful knowledge, using it here in this case, choosing the right course of action for the desired result. Okay, you go to some of these definitions. Wayne Grudem's helpful. He defines now God's wisdom this way. I think it's similar. God always chooses. So what about this wisdom of God? Here's the definition Grudem gives. God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. God's decision about what he will do are always wise decisions. That is, they always bring about the best results from God's ultimate perspective. Not asking about you or your perspective, from God's perspective. And they will bring about those results through the best possible means. Here in our section, what is what would be God's intended result? I think verse 36 is going to answer God's glory. To Him be glory forever. God's glory. And so God does everything to this end, and He does it skillfully in wisdom that He would be glorified. 
Consider here, with wisdom like we did in riches, a few other texts. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. We see God's wisdom in creation. I was just watching a clip from the John 1010 project. We were with my, my parents for a, two nights here and watching this 10-minute video on mushrooms. This is not in my notes, but it was so cool. <laughs> you wouldn't think mushrooms. Look it up. John 1010, mushroom. Don't look it up now, but somewhere else. Uh, mushrooms, and they're like the fibrous, you would know all the scientific things of these mushrooms, but they connect and roots and there is this whole underground thing going on everywhere that we think the Internet's pretty awesome now. Like, we get, we're all networked. It was nothing compared to what God's made underneath all the trees, communication going on, and mushrooms and their filaments. All this is part of it. This is God's wisdom in creation. He's doing things skillfully to his glory. Even things we rarely see, and we're just, you know now, scientists are even figuring this out. Daniel chapter 2, a little before where... Milt read this morning, Daniel prays there, and he says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. So he's wise, he's got the might to do it. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. And then guess who is just the embodiment of God's wisdom, of this wisdom of God? It is Christ Jesus himself. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, describes Jesus this way, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1 calls him, Paul calls him there, the wisdom of God. And if we're using this definition, is not Christ to use this, the right course of action for the desired result, he's the right course of action for the result, yes, of our salvation and this glory of God in all of what God is doing through this eternal plan of Christ and his redemption. God's wisdom is deep, and he will work all things together for his intended means. Things may look, again, from our perspective, They look disorderly or out of control. It is not the case with God. It is not so. And so we can say, Paul can say, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. There's one more here, and that is of God's knowledge. Oh, the depth of the knowledge of God. We're talking here theologically about, I think, God's omniscience. God's omniscience. Webster's 1828 Dictionary calls this attribute peculiar to God, God's omniscience. And he defines omniscience this way, the quality of knowing all things at once. Universal knowledge. Knowledge unbounded or infinite. So God is depth of knowledge, all things at once, everywhere, no matter where. God knows the smallest of molecules in us. He knows the outer reaches of the universe, and he knows infinitely beyond and in every direction. God's knowledge is deep. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. David says there, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down 
And when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. High, Paul would say, deep, no matter where. In Job chapter 37, Elihu questions Job. He says, hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? And then towards the end of the book, Job, uh, God has other questions for Job as well. For us, where can you go that God does not know? What can you do that God does not know? And I think this truth of God's knowledge, it, it can both cut and also bring comfort. It can soothe. Cut and soothe. How does it cut? It cuts because there's not anything about you that God doesn't know. He knows every thought. He knows every sin about you. Everything. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We might fake other people out. We do not fake God out. He knows you. Everything. But Lord willing, that cut, every errant thought and deed, that cut leads you where? Back to Christ. Because the same God that knows your many sins, though knowing that, the same God is merciful. And He's merciful for all who are in Christ. And for those in Christ, God knows you and He knows you as His child. And so here, Psalm 139, the psalmist is comforted. His God's acquainted with His ways. You hem me in. It's a comfort for the psalmist. In one sense, there's the Adam and Eve want to hide from this God. There's the cutting. What did this great God do in His mercy? Sent His Son that we might by faith look to Him and then be comforted. There is nowhere I can go that is outside your knowledge in your presence. Oh, the depths of the knowledge of God. From these things then, Paul breaks out into two, I think, just these exclamations. Number one is how unsearchable are his judgments. That's the second sentence of verse 33. How unsearchable his judgments. There, there is judgment as relates to sin. Here I think the judgments, it's related um, to this, the idea of the dec- decree of God or the decisions of God in general. His judgments, how things go, his decree, those decisions. And it's, it's really, I think, in, in some ways related to this decree of the potter. You know, the potter that is making this pot to do whatever his hand decides to do. His judgments, his decrees, his decisions. In the context, even of chapters 9 through 11 here, we've got um, the decrees of God in regard to his hardening, his decree to harden, his decree, decree to have mercy on whom he will. And these decrees are unsearchable. Another word, which is what got me thinking about Challenger Deep and the Deep Place, Another word is unfathomable. And I think of unfathomable, and then I think of fathom, and I think, isn't that a way they measured 
things and boats, and I think it's six feet long and so many fathoms and all these sorts of things. God's judgments, His ways, they're unsearchable, they're unfathomable. Again, they're, they're deeper than challenger deep, and you cannot get to the bottom of them. And number two, here, how inscrutable are His ways. And here's the theme that we've been using all through chapters 9, 10, and 11. One literal definition of inscrutable is not to be tracked out. You can't track them out. The ways of God are untrackable, maybe, maybe untraceable. I think in terms of tracking a trail, something like that, some of you hunt and you figure these things out and where this certain animal has been and you're figuring out. I think of the westerns too, the, the cowboys, you know, they can always like ride up to the campsite. Maybe they test the, you know, all the campfires. They went that way. And somehow they know from the top of their horse just which way they went. They can track them. Not so with God's ways. They are inscrutable. They can't be tracked out. Let me say, God's Word does reveal much to us by His Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, God is gracious to reveal Himself. But it's only through His Spirit. And yet, even, even in that, His ways are simply higher and deeper. We can know, we can know enough sufficiently to know God and His salvation through what He's giving. But how much higher and deeper are God's ways? Maybe you thought God was going this certain way, and He's going a different way. Or you thought, I thought, I think He's going to do this, and then this, this happens. Think about these questions. What God... When we think of God's inscrutable ways, what God would have mercy on the disobedient? Are you in that category of disobedient to God? And he said, mercy? What kind of God does that? Our God does. Or what God would give his life, would lay down his life for what? For somebody close to him, somebody walk no, for an enemy. What God would do that, would lay down his life for an enemy. Our God would do that on the cross through Christ. What God would use someone even, someone so opposed to the church, breathing murderous threats like Paul, to then be writing this very book of Romans, the letter, and others. God does those things. And then even in context, what God... How does God save the Gentiles through a disobedient Israel? And then also through the mercy that's shown to the Gentiles, he shows mercy back to Israel. And God is doing this. His ways are inscrutable. And so God's ways in this and God's ways in a million other infinite ways are really inscrutable by us. Now that's just verse 33. And we've got three more verses to go. There is a picnic to get to as well. And um, I want to cover here briefly, I'm going to cover verses 34 and 35. Last week I gave myself, I'm remembering right, hopefully I am, I gave myself a little out. We'll cover the rest next week. We may not. I think I said that, so it's going to be next week. But here's the deal. I think it's one of those, if you've climbed to the top of a mountain somewhere, it's good to just just breathe the fresh air and just kind of, and there's been some effort and work through 9, 10, 11. What is all this going on? And this crescendo, and I just kind of don't want to leave yet, kind of like the end of chapter 8 as well. So we're going to look at 36 next week, Lord willing. 
and I'm not saying beyond, but I'll just leave it out. Anyway, maybe, maybe we won't finish there. But, but I do want to look at verses 34 and 35 just as kind of a conclusion, but kind of to, to wrap this in a, almost a response here. Verse 34, the question comes, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's been pointed out, not by my thoughts, but uh, I think Doug Moo looked at this, this connection between these questions that we're going to see here in verses 34 and 35 and then the descriptions in verse 33. Kind of a, so for me, though, Doug Moo goes a little different direction. I see it in the sense of when Paul asks here, who has known the mind of the Lord, I connect that back up to God's knowledge. So you've kind of got mind connected to knowledge. You can kind of see that in your text. The next question, who, who's been his counselor, I think connected a question on, in response maybe to the depth of God's wisdom. And then you've got even lastly, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No, no. Look, the first word, the depth of God's riches. We don't make God rich. He is rich. So this connection goes back and forth. But in the middle of these connections is this how unsearchable his judgments inscrutable as ways. I think there's some importance to those phrases there. But let's look at these questions, three of them, I think. And in all these, I think an echo even of chapter 9, really, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Kind of, a, kind of a response. Who has, who has, who has? So the first question, who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the answer? No one. We may think we know God's mind. God's word reveals himself to us, again, sufficient for salvation, but we don't know the depths of God. Isaiah 40, where this, this particular uh, thinking, where this comes from, says this question there, who has measured, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of God of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Verse 13, our text, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What's the answer? No one. This is God alone. And God's knowledge is infinitely deeper than ours. You know the mind of the Lord? No, we, I'm thankful for what we have. We do not know all of what he knows, though we may think we do. Question number two, then, who has been his counselor? Who's been the counselor of God? It's kind of, if you think about it, it's a pretty comical question. Who has sought to advise the Lord? I will. I think the Lord needs my counsel in this particular area because I've been praying for a long time, and this should have happened by now. It's even a good prayer. It's not even for me. It's for somebody else, and so on and so forth. Who can counsel this God? Who can advise this God? I think Paul's here. He's chipping away at just any thought or desire to tell or advise God what he must do. God is deeply wise, and he will do what? The best thing for the best results all the time. Who are we to counsel him? May God give us, in this sense, a right kind of fear of the Lord when it comes to the temptation. I'm, I'm not saying in a trial and suffering to say, Lord, help me understand what's going on. But there, there can be kind of this other sense of, I don't know why God does this. It's just, 
I mean, dare we say it's goofy, or I don't, it seems odd. Let us be careful and fearfully say, who are we to counsel the Lord? Pray to him, petition, but he, he knows, and he is good and he is righteous in all his ways, though we don't understand them all. Lastly, the last question, verse 35, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This text comes out of Job, chapter 41, verse 11. In there, God's referencing this Leviathan. I don't know all of what the Leviathan is. Kind of makes me think of the Loch Ness monster, but it's Leviathan. The ESV says some large sea animal. It's an animal that, that man cannot possibly control or stand before. That's whatever it is. Man's nothing before it. God's using this Leviathan to question Job in light of this, saying, Job, who then is he who can stand before me? This is God's words. Who has first given to me, he says in verse 11, that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I think you could apply this question even in, in terms of God doesn't owe us any explanation for what he's doing. We can ask, would help, Lord, help us understand. He doesn't owe us to that understanding. But I think even more closely tied, if we're tying this last question to the riches in verse 33, it's the idea of God bestowing his riches where? On all whom God so chooses. Wherever, whoever. We no more control the Leviathan than we can control God or demand from him. God doesn't owe anyone mercy or kindness or grace or these riches. They're gifts. And they're gifts out of the abundance of His riches to all whom He will. Wrap up here. God is deep. He is infinitely deep in riches and wisdom and knowledge. His decree, His judgments, they are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. What is there left for us to do? I think simply trust in God's sovereign ways. To respond, you, here's a hint. How do, should we respond? Here's how Job responded. I know that you can do all things. I'm skipping a few verses, but I know that you can do all things, and that Job says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Perhaps today, repentance is needed in your life for questioning God's ways. Maybe for questioning God's plans and decrees. Questioning them in a who gives counsel to the Lord type, type way. Maybe for assuming God owes you something rather than acknowledging it's by his grace and mercy. Maybe there's repentance that's needed. Perhaps today, trust, though, is needed to acknowledge, to trust, Lord, your ways are right and good, even if I don't understand them, even if right now things don't feel right and good. They feel awful, and I'm in pain, and I'm suffering. That declaration of, Lord, your ways, you are right. You are good. So maybe there's repentance, maybe trust. We ought to trust, but certainly today, praise.
That's what Paul does. That's what we'll look at next week. Praise that Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your word we know about five feet of the depths of you. And it's enough, Lord, to show us our condition of sin, our inability to save ourselves by our own works and our own good deeds, and our need to simply put our faith and trust in the one who died and rose again, Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us that in your word. Lord, we're a gathered body today in many, many different, many different situations. All of us are in, Lord, different struggles and hardships and sufferings, some joyful. Maybe it's a time of rest before the next trial of sorts. And yet, Lord, we live in this world, a a world of corruption, a world groaning. And so, Lord, in the midst of the groaning and the groaning of our own hearts, would you just plant the truths of your sovereign hand and your glory and your wisdom and your knowledge and your riches in our heart. Lord, that beholding you, that, that seeing you today, we could, we could say along with Job, we've, we've heard of you. Now we see you. And may this particular section of Romans be part of that, just encouraging our eyes to see you. See your greatness and your glory and say, all glory be to God forever. So I pray this, Lord, encourage us in this. And may we worship you and then worship you into eternity for who you are. I pray this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.